Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Stephen M. Pastores, MD, FCCM, about his article, Critical Care Organizations in Academic Medical Centers in North America, a descriptive report, which was published in the August edition of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Pastores serves as Program Director of Critical Care Medicine in the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He also works as a Professor of Medicine and Anesthesiology at Weill Cornell Medical College, all in New York, New York. Additionally, he serves on the Board of Regents of our society or the American College of Critical Care Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Pastoris. Thank you for having me, Dr. Weinstein. Your article is, is certainly timely and in, in many ways describes some administrative changes in the way perhaps critical care departments, service lines, centers are being organized, especially within academic medical centers. And I, w- I was wondering what prompted your group to look at this interesting issue. Yeah, so my colleagues and I here in New York have always had an interest in how critical care medicine training, research, administration, and governance has not only occurred here in New York in the tri-state area, but also nationally. And we've been advocating for quite some time, actually, on, on the state of critical care and where it needs to be moving forward. And one of our passing interest that generated this particular study was anecdotally we had been observing that several larger academic medical centers were beginning to restructure into critical care organizations such as institutes, centers, systems, departments, if you will. And we thought it was time to do a study like a survey study to try to ascertain and better understand not only how these organizations are structured, what their experiences to date, but more importantly, have an avenue for perhaps those who might be interested in setting up these types of organizations or service lines at their own respective institutions, kind of give them a little bit of background data that would serve them in terms of their work in trying to develop their own systems at their own respective institutions. And I I was curious to notice, and perhaps I'm just overlooking the structure there you have in New York, but I didn't notice that Memorial Sloan Kettering was on the list of uh, centers with critical care organizations. Is that a function of how the larger organization is structured? Yeah, so two of my co-authors, Drs. Vladimir Kibetan and Drs. John Rapello, work at institutions, Montefiore Medical Center and the Mount Sinai Medical Center, both here in New York, respectively, and they have critical care organizations at their institutions. Neil Halpern and I, who are both at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, are contemplating or in the process of trying to also establish a similar type structure. And it was through our meetings, the four of us meeting, uh, having dinners together and talking about things, writing articles, came up with the idea of, of looking at this. And for Dr. Halpern and I, it was really a way for us to better understand the existing structure and, and learn from some of our more experienced colleagues. I think there's certainly a lot of useful information in your article. As We are at Jefferson here, uh, where I, I am based, are in a similar type of a process. So I thank you for this information on a personal level. Yes. 
Perhaps you can begin then by explaining, I wasn't entirely clear, how you identified such organizations. So we used a survey questionnaire to find out information regarding the structure, governance, and experience to date of established critical care organizations in North America. So this became a U.S. and Canada sort of study. And the way we identified these centers is we did, for about a year, we did a lot of web searching to try using different terms. And what we were interested in is finding out those centers or institutions that identified themselves as standalone critical care organizations, or if they were called by a different name, such as critical care department, operation system, center, institute, etc. And then we supplemented that with additional correspondences with the directors that we identified to see if they knew of other institutions that had critical care organizations. Uh, we had some face-to-face -face discussions, uh, referrals, telephone communication. So it's a variety of steps that we tried to do. And, I, and we believe that we captured, you know, most if not all critical care organizations that we thought were out there. The focus was to make sure that when we were searching and looking for these critical care organizations, we were very specific in making sure that what we meant by having a critical organization was that it had to be led by a physician intensivist and it had to have control over the majority, if not all of the ICUs at that institution or medical center. We stayed away from institutions that had critical care divisions or services under larger departments because our intention was to capture more of the advanced governance models of critical care rather than the more traditional models that already currently exist at most uh, academic, if not all academic medical centers. I guess we'll get into this a little bit, but I was curious, how would you define, the, I guess, the governance? So uh, does it mean having control of a budget? Does it mean having a control of the hiring processes? Does it mean other things as well? Yes, we wanted to capture all of that in our survey. So we broke down our survey into four major domains. We wanted to know a little bit more about the CCO, what was the name of the entity, who the ICU director or CCO director was, characteristics of that individual from background specialty to how long they've been serving as a CCO director to how much experience they've had before they became CCO director, and then more specifically, looking at personal questions like who's staffing these ICUs at your CCO, how are they hired, who pays for them, is there a hospital budget line to support their salaries, or is it from gross billing and other areas, revenue uh, areas, to understanding more about how they transition from being a traditional division or service into a more structured advanced governance model for critical care. So we, and, and what their experience to date was, whether they were working out well, efficiently, unified, empowered, or whether they were still in the early stages. So these are some of the elements that we tried to capture in the 46 questions that, that were in the survey. And you, you mentioned this elsewhere. Some of the barriers to such critical care organization is all about power and responsibility and, and who has control, it seems. Um, so I know, I know on a personal level, making such a change is not difficult because many people, especially departmental chairmen, 
unit directors perceive some loss of control. And I wondered your thoughts about that as I was reading through this. Yes, as we state in our article, there are many factors um, that might explain why there are so few critical care organizations in North America. The Canadian critical care organizations are much more structured and they've been pretty much in place for quite some time. I think the challenges in the United States probably relate to, as you earlier mentioned, the fact that that ICUs have traditionally been developed within the context of the traditional you know, academic departmental model. And with department chairs, whether it's in medicine, anesthesiology, surgery, peds, neurology, it sometimes might be challenging to have department chairs give up control of these ICUs. So that's, that's certainly uh, a reason. And that might be because of potential loss of billing or control of staffing and, and who gets hired as an intensivist to work in their ICUs. But I think it also partly relates, and this is another interest of us, that the fact that fellowship training in critical care and the leaders in critical care that only gets produced from our training programs really come from so many different disciplines. And so it's, it's very hard. We don't even have a unified critical care curriculum of training for all specialties and a, a unified exam. And, and I think that's factoring in to why we have intensivists who come out of you know, training in either surgical critical care, anesthesia critical care, medical or neurology critical care that may not make them always suitable to, you know, be in models where the ICUs might be more aligned more with the medical department or the surgical department, et cetera. And I don't, I don't think there's enough in the training of our fellows right now to make them suitable to get into a career where they become leaders, you know, not only academically, but also be politically astute to run the administrative business line model that most of the CCEOs clearly uh, need. So I think these are some of the, the issues. And I think one important message I, I think that comes across after doing this survey is that, you know, all politics is local as one common leader. And it takes time, lots of years, to get a model to be successful. And as much as you can learn from the heavyweights in critical care who have, have done this for maybe longer than many of, of the ones that just came up in the last five to ten years, it, you know, it's clear that you have to learn from those who have succeeded, but also learn from those who have failed. Uh, because there are many that have tried to set this up for years or are trying now and still struggling to make it successful. Uh, and I think you can learn a lot from them just as well as you can learn from those who have succeeded. But it, it really takes years, uh, a lot of leadership skills. Most of the time, it really is something that relates more locally and to what, what best suits your own institution or your region that really makes this work in the, in the long run. Sure. Maybe we could take a step back. What do you see as the advantage to a, a critical care organization that uh, really centers critical care as a, almost as a department or various other terms, but taking it away from sitting underneath a department? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, there are several benefits to trying to consolidate all critical care operations within a medical center. It doesn't have to be an academic medical center. It could be at a community hospital where maybe there's a lot of different ICUs that might exist in some of these hospitals. But I think consolidating critical care has a lot into an organization, service line department, whatever you call it, has a lot of advantages, not, not only in, in containing costs, improving safety and quality standards, 
with regards to hiring, instituting uh, protocols perhaps, and other important initiatives for patient care and safety. But clearly, there's something to be said also about unification for staff training, research potential or opportunities if you have more ICUs that you can bring in to get study patients into clinical trials. I think standardization of technology is a big item uh, in terms of uh, making sure everybody's using the same equipment, getting trained, and uh, you, you can get volume discounts perhaps if you're buying it, you know, in mass as compared to each unit trying to figure out which equipment to use. And I think more importantly, better patient flow, throughput, and triage. I think it's a lot easier when you are triaging into various units if you have the flexibility to you know, downgrade or upgrade patients into various types of units if you have control over them as compared to if you have to, for example, run a medical ICU and you need to bring somebody in but you're full and you have to access the other ICU. So I, I think better patient flow, standardization of technology, and institution of patient safety and quality improvement protocols are, are perhaps easier to accomplish if you have a more unified and advanced governance structure. I was wondering about one of the, the items you mentioned there. And I'm not sure if I saw it in the article or not, but I was wondering, most of the people I, I speak to still seem to have specialty ICUs and folks that only work in one ICU at, at many institutions. And I, I was wondering if there is much cross-fertilization, if you will, or if folks are working in more than one ICU. Was that addressed in the survey, or do you have some of that from maybe from personal uh, knowledge and experience? Mostly out of personal knowledge and experience. In our survey, we did ask how the units that were under governance by the CCO were staffed, and about 50% of them had, you know, in-house intensivists from all different types of specialties. They had, you know, about nearly three-quarters, I believe, had advanced practice providers, a smaller percentage had telemedicine coverage, and others that were even using uh, hospitalists. Most of the larger academic centers had intensivists from all disciplines, and although some tended to be more concentrated in their ICUs of expertise, there were others that had medical intensivists covering units like surgical units or cardiothoracic. Neurological ICUs tended to be predominantly covered by neurointensivists, at least in the, in the institutions that we surveyed. And there was more concentration of medical intensivists, of course, in the medical units and maybe the medical surge, just because of the, the fact that there, there's just a lot more internal medicine-based intensivists out there than the other disciplines. But there, there was some cross-fertilization in, in some of the centers that we surveyed. I guess a big question often people have out there is in terms of, uh, of funds flow, and perhaps you can speak to a little bit about the budgetary concerns and also uh, in terms of salary support and revenue flow and, and what you found in those regards. Yes. So we found that about 40% of the uh, institutions that were CCOs, the intensivist salaries were provided solely by the CCOs from revenue generated through clinical operations. About 30% or so uh, were jointly covered by both the CCO and the existing department, anesthesia, surgery, medicine, deeds, or neuro. And then a smaller percentage covered only by the hospital or covered only by the department. So it's clear that a critical care organization is still going to be largely dependent on hospital support to make it work. 
it is very, uh, at least in, in the U.S. model, it's very, I think it, it's somewhat challenging to expect that a CCO can stand alone financially to port 24-7 coverage and all this, the help from, from advanced practice providers, use telemedicine or other services, and be self-sufficient. I think it's clear that some hospital support is necessary, and whether it's through compensation of physicians and, and allied providers to uh, supporting administrative staff, secretarial staff, research staff. It just seems, at least to me and, and my colleagues, that there has to be uh, an element of institutional support to uh, be successful. And so the person that's interested in moving in this direction, obviously you need a, a fair amount of leverage with your hospital administration. How do you make the case, other than showing data that, yes, this is how these programs exist, how do you make the case that, listen, we, we do need hospital support, we can't just make ends meet on clinical services alone? Yes. Yeah, so I think one of the first things is to understand what's going on locally at one's institution, understand some of the commonalities between the various ICUs that perhaps would be good to keep under a unified governance structure, but then also have a good understanding of the problems that exist when ICUs are on their own or siloed under different departments, and then figuring out ways to see how your quality metrics are doing, whether one ICU uh, may have less rates of infection than others, and try to establish whether certain best practices are being followed. And, and, and maybe if you can show that, you know, you could, you could make things better, streamline whether it's technology acquisition or standardized best practices, education and training of your staff show the potential there for revenue perhaps to be uh, obtained and maybe decrease costs. These are some of the things that certainly one has to first understand locally to try to make a good case as to why a hospital leadership, for example, would be interested in supporting the establishment of a critical care organization. So it's understanding what goes on locally and then making a case. It could be a business case. It could be a case for efficiencies, cost reduction, better profile. It could be also a way to uh, perhaps uh, locally make yourself more known as having a more advanced structure for taking care of critically ill patients in a departmentalized you know, or a, an integrated model. So there are many ways to try to support the concept of how you would make the case to your hospital administration. But again, this is not something that you can just do with a clear-cut business plan. This has to really take a lot of time, a lot of meetings, and education of your hospital leadership, making the case with your departmental chairs, or at least getting their support and to be on board with you. Because not every institution will have a perfect world where everybody will just buy into the idea. Clearly, it's, it's something that you have to keep working on constantly and, and making a case to your, to your hospital leaders. In, in some ways, your article points to this. One, the relatively low number of critical care organizations across the U.S. and Canada. And, and, and two, in terms of the perceptions of functioning, it seems as though the, the process of changing to a critical care organization is gradual and is still in flux in many of these institutions. It was, I guess, a little bit more than half thought their CCOs were unified and empowered, whereas a not-so-small minority were not so sure about some of those issues. Yes. I mean, most of the 
critical care organizations that we surveyed were only established, the majority were just established in the last 15 years, and some in the last five years. And it's clear that for several of these relatively more recent CCOs, there's still a work in progress. If you look at some of these institutions, they have governance of the majority, but but not all of their ICUs. So there were some institutions that on average had only, let's say, four of six of their ICUs under governance, and coronary care, for example, pediatric or burn units tended to be um, not under the governance of the CCO. At least those seem to be the three units that that were not under governance. So it varies, and most of them are are still evolving. I think the more experienced CCOs that have been around, let's say, 15, 20 years plus, tended to be because they had a strong foundation, either because they were an academic enterprise, for example, like the University of Pittsburgh under Derek Angus and before him Mitch Fink, to centers like in Emory with Tim Buckman and Craig Cooper-Smith for the last five or six. It really takes very strong visionary thinkers, leaders, experience for 15, 20, 30 plus years to really get a good grasp of what the right model should be and how to make it work locally. That I, I think that's the reason why you end up seeing only very few of these CCOs. Uh, whereas in contrast, if you look at emergency medicine, just to have another specialty here, they, they went through the same process like critical care, but it took them 20, 30 years to establish departments of critical care, to have an examination in emergency medicine, and, and, and now being able to train in critical care. It, it's taken them quite a long time, but they certainly had uh, the advantage of getting themselves going in that field, whereas critical care still has some ways to go. That's an interesting analogy to emergency medicine. I hadn't really thought of emergency medicine in that regard, I guess in part because they really have had uh, a large success in moving to that model. Are there other points that you'd like to get across? Yeah, I think that one of the messages my colleagues and I would like to convey, I mean, what, what we did in this article, in this survey, was to just get some baseline descriptive data on the existing CCOs to try to understand what's going on out there with the advanced governance of critical care in the United States and in Canada. And with this data, we hope, and we have already started getting a lot of interest from our peers and other opinion leaders, that clearly they're thankful that this article is out there. But of course, the next step, so what's the next step? And and one of the thoughts that we've talked about very, very recently is, is perhaps we should be pushing our societies to advocate more for not only the creation of more critical care organizations, but to actually perhaps set up a committee structure, if you will, under SCCM, which I think would be the most logical society to take to handle this, to perhaps set up a structure or a committee or whatever form or group or task force to have current leaders of critical care organizations and perhaps emerging leaders or those interested in becoming a critical care organization of their own individual institutions to have, I would say, a more organized national leadership role in not only advocating for critical care in general, but trying to create more opportunities for the future leaders of critical care to have a way or a structure from which to kind of learn from the pros and set the stage so that many of the current CCO leaders can draw from their experience and mentor 
the ones that are coming right behind them because as you saw from our article, most of our current CCO leaders right now are, are certainly, you know, they all have had 30 years plus of experience, at least most of them. And so we need to train the future leaders, the future generation of CCO leaders. And I think to do that, they need to have a, an avenue. So I think creating a committee, a task force, a structure within SCCM probably might be a good way to just get more opinion leaders to talk about things and ask the questions about what does it take to create a CCO and what kind of leader are you looking for and how do you put the pieces of the puzzle together to make it work not only locally but to enhance the image of Philippi in general. I think that hopefully that is one of the messages that this preliminary survey that we have, you know, will start uh, some conversation, some dialogue along the lines for creating more CCOs in the future. It's an interesting point. You know, for instance, our American College of Surgeons and many professional societies have uh, leadership courses and, and structures that the society certainly potentially could offer for, for those of us who aspire to be CCO directors. Absolutely. I mean, there are other organizations, surgical, medical, uh, that actually have committees where department chairs participate in and they bounce ideas around and they have their own internal group. Uh, I think th- th- these are ways in which they can foster, you know, not only succession planning, but set the stage for uh, younger potential leaders to uh, come into some of these eventually and fill in their, their shoes with time. So I think it would be a good strategy to, because they, they don't teach you this in medical school nor in residency training or fellowship training. I mean, most of the CCO leaders learned on the go and learned from senior mentors that trained them and had the vision to create this CCO. So I, I think imparting that knowledge would be important to continue on hopefully this path to creating more of these unified structures in the future. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you for a wonderful contribution. I'm, I'm sure like many uh, that you've heard from, we thank you for this because it, it does help with the local leadership uh, as well. So thank you for this wonderful article. Thank you very much for the invite. And enjoy talking to you. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th to 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org slash congress to register and for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCM, is an associate professor of surgery at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in the Division of Acute Care Surgery. He is director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the ICU, communication and language in medicine, clinical ethics, and global surgery. Board certified in surgery, surgical critical care, neurocritical care, and hospice and palliative medicine, Weinstein is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American College of Critical Care Medicine. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.